Welcome to Heart Yoga Radio. This podcast is another in our interesting time series. And the podcast proper starts in a moment. And I'm just taking this opportunity to give you a, a, a forewarning that, uh, that there will be a kind of slight change in the ambience of the sound somewhere in the middle of the podcast. I'll tell you for why. Uh, I did do most of the podcast earlier today whilst taking my constitutional off up in the hills. It was quite windy at one point and the, the wind has come through quite strongly on the soundtrack. So what I decided to do was to just redo that section in the house at home. So you'll just notice a little change of ambience. And there is also an addendum which I did at home, so again you'll notice a change of ambience again. Okay, I shall hand you over to my uh, earlier self. Enjoy. Welcome to Heart Yoga Radio. I'm taking my constitutional. It's the 18th of May 2021. And I'm going to do another of our current affairs podcasts in the series Interesting Times. This one is going to be about the situation in Palestine. In case you've been hiding under a rock, the Palestine situation has been kicking off again into extreme violence. This is something that happens every now and then. And it's characterised by extensive shelling, bombing of Gaza by the Israeli Defence Force. And so far, this has been going on for, I'm not sure exactly how long. Uh, a week or two. In the past, these conflicts have gone on for much longer than that, 50-odd days, I think the one in 2014 was. Uh, The Israeli government claims that this is in a defensive response to rockets being fired by Hamas from Gaza onto uh, Israeli cities and villages outside of uh, the Gaza Strip. Now, before before I carry on, I want to say I'm not a world expert on Middle Eastern history, politics, etc. I haven't been to that part of the world either. And there's uh, plenty of resources on the internet where you can get yourself up to speed uh, on this matter. You have to bear in mind, of course, that there's, there's propaganda flying around from all directions, which makes it a little bit more difficult to ascertain what you can trust and what you can't trust. I will give sources uh, as I go along. I'll tell you where I'm. Uh, look in and what I'm listening to and what I think's going on. But uh, the main thrust of this podcast isn't going to be to give you the history and the detail 
though of course a certain measure of that is essential if we're going to proceed at all. Rather my purpose will be to draw out what you might call what you might call points of philosophy of meaning, philosophy of discourse, uh, political philosophy, particularly as it pertains to propaganda, misinformation, information, manipulation of populations and the way they think and behave. So I'll be drawing out those kind of points from what's going on. Now this I know sounds a little bit abstract and it may well be But in proceeding in this way, I've got no wish to detract from, distance myself from, or encourage you to distance yourself from the, the human suffering that's right at the core of this, this matter. On the contrary, I'm hoping that we can perhaps advance our understanding a little bit through the resources that I, that I do have to bring to bear on this. And it's a hope, it may not be fulfilled, but that's where I'm coming from. So, okay, a little bit of context and background is essential. And it's also remarkable, I'm just gonna preempt my uh, points, my philosophical points here by saying, it is instructive how without context or highly decontextualised, much of the mainstream media reporting is, particularly as we get in it from the BBC and the, the media, the mainstream media in the UK, and I suspect it's the same in other parts of the world. In fact, I know that this is the case from research I've been doing. So the, the government of Israel claims that the initiating moment is the lobbying of homemade rockets from Gaza, which has been going on on a daily basis and which has managed to kill around, at the time of speaking, around about 10 Israeli citizens. Uh, you ask a, a citizen in the street in East Jerusalem, and he or she will tell you that what's instigated the rocket lobbying is the invasion of a very important mosque in Jerusalem, the third most important mosque in Islam, at a time when congregants were at prayer in the mosque uh, during a religious festival by Israeli police who proceeded to beat people up and trash the mosque. Uh, I suppose in the eyes of the worshippers, desecrate the mosque. Other people in this, that same area will point to the uh, eviction of Palestinians from their homes and farms to make way for Israeli settlers. So, where's the starting point? <laughs> And of course we can go back and back and back and in fact you, if you do do that, if you take that, look for the historical source, I mean you, you end up, I don't know, at the, uh, 
the destruction of the Second Temple in some decades in the Common Era, very early in the Common Era, 2,000 years ago thereabouts. And probably that's not far enough back. And in a sense, there is no kind of causative moment we can discern. It's not as though you know, God said, let there be light, there was light. It's not that type of scenario at all. But if we go back to the beginning of the 20th century and the back end of the 19th century, there was a movement amongst European Jews, Zionism, that took the view that the Jews needed their own homeland. And it's a, a movement that got some political purchase and some influence. The key moment in this development is uh, 1917 uh, when the Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom of Britain and Ireland, as it was then, uh, Lord Arthur Balfour, uh, issued the Balfour Decla Declaration. And there was a lot of ins and outs and a lot of to and fro and horse trading within the cabinet and amongst the political class to arrive at this point. But the Balfour Declaration was a letter written by Lord Balfour to uh, a leading uh, Jew, uh, uh, Baron Rothschild, I forget which, which one it was, I forget the guy's um, first name. But the gist of the letter was that the British government had agreed in principle to there being a home for the Jewish people. The declaration avoids the words Jewish state, but it does talk about a home or a homeland for the Jewish people. There's also a clause in the letter, it's a very short letter, it fits on one side of ordinary notepaper. There is a clause which says that due regard has to be taken of the rights of the indigenous people, particularly it says the the cultural and religious rights. It doesn't say the political rights, it says the cultural and the religious rights of the indigenous people. Now the indigenous people at that time were mostly uh, Palestinian Arabs. There were Jews in Palestine at that time and in fact Jews had been coming uh, from Europe from the beginning of the century but they were a very small part of the population. And uh, they'd been a small part of the population, a minority in the population, at least since, I don't know, the 12th century or something like that, and possibly long before. The diaspora really started around the time of the Roman Empire. So that was the Balfour De Declaration, and Baron Rothschild was uh, permitted in the letter to uh, make an announcement amongst uh, Zionist committees and groups uh, in the UK and moves were then afoot so what's the geopolitical context uh, why is Britain in this position to be able to do this thing well we're still in 1917 in the throes of World War One, and you should remember that World War One was a war between the the Western Allies which was the UK, the British Empire, 
and France, etc. But against the central powers, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, what with Germany, and the Ottoman Empire, which is the old Turkish Empire that had endured for 400 years, or three or 400 years, and of which Palestine, the Levant, all that eastern Mediterranean was a part of the Ottoman Empire. Now, it was fully expected by 1917 that the British would be in the position to carve up and reorganise the Ottoman Empire as it crumbled. It's pretty evident that they'd lost the war. Now, there's an awful lot of ins and outs to what went on here, and no doubt you've seen the film Lawrence of Arabia, and that was all part of this game. Uh, and the UK was still at least partly the global hegemon. So it was able to, to do this thing. Of course, after the war, Palestine became a kind of suzerainty or came under the, the British mandate. And it was pretty well ruled by the British. Uh, in this context, which is also note, that if this looks like some sort of magnanimous move on the part of the, the British state that, that, that around this time they passed an Aliens Act to, to limit the number of Jews entering the United Kingdom. Uh, bearing in mind that many Jews were fleeing from pogroms and per, uh, in Russia and, and persecution across Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, and were wanting to come to the UK. And that there was a law fixing the numbers who were are going to be allowed to come in. So it's in that in that sort of uh, geopolitical and local context that the, we had the Balfour Declaration, which really set the whole thing in, in motion. I mean, it came to a head in, in 1948 when the Jewish state, the state of Israel, was, was established. Now, bear in mind that, this, that after World War II, there were many Jews wanting to get away from Europe for very obvious reasons. And I believe there was an armed struggle of some sort with the British to establish this, this state, and it was accomplished in, in 1948. Now, at this point, if we're going to tell uh, the story in as objective a manner as we can, we have to bear in mind that there were millions of indigenous people in the, the land known as Palestine, the biblical lands perhaps, sort of between the Lebanon down towards the Dead Sea. In whatever kind of international agreements or the way that this panned out was that there were, that Gaza, adjacent to the Mediterranean Sea in the southwest, and the West Bank, around the West Bank of the River Jordan, around uh, Jerusalem, that these areas were not a part of the state of Israel, but were reserved for uh, Palestinians. In the rest of what is now called Israel, some 700,000 Palestinian Arabs were displaced, evicted from the land, to make way for uh, waves of Jewish immigrants fleeing from the horrors of the Holocaust and the chaos of European self-destruction. Palestinian Arabs know this as the Nakba 
which loosely translates as the catastrophe. Plus there were very, very many refugees and quite a good number of whom became the inhabitants of these uh, non-Israel enclaves that had been established. Now, in 1967, Israel uh, militarily occupied the whole of historical Palestine, which includes the, uh, the West Bank and, and Gaza. This was in the context of the famous Six-Day War with Egypt, which, kind of, which, which did result in the boundaries uh, in the Middle East uh, and in this part of the Middle East being redrawn. That state of affairs obtains uh, to this day. Now, in the case of Gaza, Gaza is uh, fenced off, basically, from the rest of Israel. And Israel dictates very many large aspects of what happens in Gaza. For instance, uh, electricity, the flow of electricity, water supply, who can leave and who can return. The checkpoints are manned by the Israeli army. People need permission from the Israeli army to move in and out of Gaza. Uh, in the case of electricity, electricity supply is very sporadic. And in the case of water, uh, I believe 90% or even more of the water supply is not really fit for human consumption. Uh, I say this to give you a, a sense of what this occupation entails for the lived experience of people who are living in Gaza. It's not an exaggeration to, to describe Gaza as the world's biggest open-air prison. Uh, one Jewish scholar, uh, a scholar at a, an Israeli university, whose name is Captain at the moment, uh, claimed that Gaza was the world's biggest concentration camp. And this statement was made before the recent uh, enhanced, intensified blockade on Gaza. Jeremy Corbyn hit the nail on the head the other day when he said that until this occupation that's obtained since 1967 is, is stopped, there will be no peace. And he's right. It seems to me that it's necessary if one is to understand what is going on in this situation. It's necessary to listen to people who actually live in Gaza. And there are plenty of good testimonies, impassioned testimonies on, on the internet. I think Navarra Media have been pretty good uh, in recent days. Owen Jones uh, has presented some good material along these lines. There's an excellent film on the Grey Zone. Uh, it's a documentary. Uh, it's put together by Dan Cohen and Max Blumenthal, who uh, you'll notice I mention fairly frequently. Uh, that documentary is about the 2014 bombardment of Gaza by the Israeli uh, Defence Forces. And that time, uh, the the war, which is what it was, went on for 
51 days. And the Israelis did mount a land invasion with tanks and artillery and soldiers. And uh, Max Blumenthal and Dan Cohn were on the ground in Gaza, uh, speaking to people, interviewing people, observing what's going on. And they were right in the thick of it. Uh, buildings were being blown up right, right before their eyes. And... Uh, What's described there is just un, un, is unimaginably horrific, and thousands of pe- people died. Died. Eighteen thousand homes were destroyed. Uh, people were assassinated and shot. Uh, pretty well in cold blood, and. There was eventually a ceasefire, but to say it was after 51 days. I mean, Hamas were lobbing rockets and they, they managed to destroy one Israeli home. So you've got one against 18,000 if you want to do those kind of utilitarian calculations. I mean, the self-defence and the sadism. And say Norman Finkelstein is not afraid uh, to, to say that the Jewish state and its... In, uh, it's, it's apparatchiks or, or sadists and it, it, it's something he wishes to extend to a large part of the population of Israel and uh, of course the, the, the cry that if you criticise the, the state of Israel you're an anti, anti-Semite is something that Finkelstein has devoted great energy to, to debunking. He says, and nobody's going to out-Jew Norman Finkelstein. His mum and his dad were both in the camps. And <laughs> he doesn't mind speaking up about that and saying, you're not going to out-Jew me, basically. He doesn't put, put it like that. But he's worth listening to, I would say, Norman Finkelstein, Professor Norman Finkelstein. So, people say, well, what about the rockets? And Norman Finkelstein's answer to, to that is to say, what would you do? What would you do? You know, we've been locked in here for 70 years, and certainly, like, seriously, our lives have been truncated by this situation since 1967, which Jeremy Corbyn describes as the year he left school, and it's still going on. What would you do? What would you do? Uh, and, and Finkelstein also makes a very interesting point. He says, well, liberals, Western liberals say to the Palestinians, you need a Gandhi, do it by non-violence, and you'll win that way. Well, the truth about Gandhi is that he was non-violent, but there were large factions of the Indian independence movement that weren't. There was an armed struggle with the British at the same time, as Gandhi's Ahimsa uh, approach. And... Uh, Finkelstein makes the point that, well, the Palestinians tried it. They had like, huge peaceful demonstrations, which were met with sniper fire from Israel. Yeah. And you can't say this is down to a conscript army not being very well trained or panicking. There's snipers, snipers, high up, taking people out, demonstrating. So, 
this is all well documented. Uh, I've been kind of conspiracy theory or anything. You can check this stuff out. They're reliable sources. So th- that's the that's the situation. And the philosophical points. I've already made one. It was like, well, where do you start when you're looking for causality? You know, what's what's the blame moment? Is it the rockets, or is it the or is it the police going into the mosque, or is it the the terrible thing of uh, which is rated uh, a, a crime in international law of dispossessing people from their land, which they've held for generations, sometimes knocking their houses down or moving into their houses to make way for. Uh, Jewish settlers on illegally occupied land. I mean, just imagine that in your own in your own life. To my mind, that's one of the most disgusting features of this this whole kind of setup. And the fact when people excuse what they're doing and they say, "Well, I'm a Jew," and it says in the Bible that this is the Jewish homeland. These are the biblical lands. This land belongs to us because it says so in the Holy Book. I mean, the, the, the kind of half-baked, illogical, irrational, stupid nature of claims like that, which nevertheless carry weight and cause people to behave in, in really horrible ways towards their fellow human beings. Was it that? Is that where we put the start point? Was it the Balfour Declaration? I mean, I should should say that there was an apology for the Balfour Declaration at one point. I'm trying to kind of remember exactly when it was made saying that it should have contained a clause uh, insisting on the political rights as well as the cultural and religious rights of, of the indigenous Palestinian Arabs. Uh, I think that was made in 2008, that, uh, that apology. And some people have rated the Balfour Declaration as, as, as the worst decision that the British Empire ever made. <laughs> you know, do we place it there? I mean, it, it seems obvious to me that you, you don't get an understanding in, this, in the sense of a, a broad, detailed, uh, factually-based picture of what, what the situation is without uh, considering geopolitics and history. You can't. It's not, you, you, you can't get past slogans without that kind of uh, uh, understanding. I don't think it has to be, you know, you have to become a professor of like Middle Eastern history to get that, but you need to know enough, I would say. So back to my philosophical point here, and it, it is that there isn't a starting point in, in, in a chain of blame. And it's not to say that it's, you, 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 you have to get all kind of even-handed and liberal and both-sidist about this. I definitely, definitely don't think that this is a, a both-sides issue. But you do need this big, you need a big picture, you need a context. My first philosophical point, there is no understanding without this historical and geopolitical context of this situation. Just to flesh it all out a little bit, the the current geopolitical situation, we have to understand that the United States of America gives Israel with five million people. 3.6, 3.6, I think it is, billions per annum, which they mostly seem to spend on arms. America lets Israel have the most state-of-the-art arms. They're bombing 
uh, got at this very moment with state-of-the-art, up-to-the-minute warplanes, up-to-the-minute weapons. Israel itself is, is protected from missiles by what's called the Iron Dome, which is an American anti-missile system. And it's largely succeeding, considering that the the Palestinian Hamas rockets are kind of like some, but Finkelstein described them as bottle rockets. They're kind of homemade affairs made out of gas pipe and stuff like that. It's more gestural than, 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 than anything. It does do a little bit of damage, but in comparison with what Israel is raining down on Gaza, it's just, it's, it's pure sadism. It's way, way beyond nations do. Nation states in international law have the right to defend themselves, but this, this is way, way beyond that. So point, point one, context is important for understanding. Though I'm asking you not to confuse this with both sidesism. I can tell you, you know, like the Palestinians have, have a case and the, the Israeli government is fascistic and operating in an apartheid system of a very, very nasty character. It's an, a, a, this, this battle shouldn't be described as something like the, the finals at Wimbledon, like a match between near equals that will be decided on the day. It's not. It's uh, absolutely and completely uneven. That's the second point, actually, is that, is that the, the mainstream media really display their propaganda function in the way they report this matter and the fact that their attempt at this kind of both sidesism in fact weighing it towards the poor Israelis who are having to get into their bomb shelters it really exposes the nature of propaganda and there's a point there about what you call even and in this both sidesism that needs to be to be made and I think I'd like to at some point put that on my list of pending podcasts which is quite long is to look into that a little bit more fully second point the nature of propaganda uh, the third point is a psychological one or a mass psychological one and it is that trauma rolls down the ages rolls down the genera- generations I mean, why did the Jews want to go to Palestine in the first place? Well, because of pogroms in Russia. And then after World War II, of course, a deeply, deeply traumatised people who Hitler had attempted to completely exterminate. And that spectre looms large. And this is something that's bothered me and engaged my attempt to understand for many years, for many decades. In the 1970s, just to flesh this story out a little bit, I read a couple of books by a writer called Ellie Wiesel. One of the books was called Night. Off the top of my head, I don't remember the title of the other one, but Ellie Wiesel tells the story of his teenage years, which were spent in Auschwitz. He did escape at the end of the war, war as a, a young adult. I'm not quite sure exactly how old he was, and of course he made his way to Israel. And in Israel, of course, there was this attempt to establish the independent state, which was still under British rule. 
and there, there was armed struggle. I'm not up to speed on the detail of quite when on there, but Elie Wiesel tells the story that when he was in Israel, he joined the liberation movement or the the State of Israel movement, and it fell upon him in in one instance to. execute a prisoner and that prisoner was a British officer and Elie Wiesel very bravely I think tells the story of executing this officer first of all talking to him and the officer trying to dissuade him but not pleading for his life being very sort of stiff upper lippy about it and and brave I think but I think the officer was executed and Wiesel reflects on how He'd sworn he'd never be like the, the psychopaths in charge of Auschwitz, but then found himself in that position. And this is the tragedy of the human situation, I think. The Israel has turned into a fascist, apartheid, sadistic state. And according to Norman Finkelstein, the, the, the population at large are fully are full participants in that. I don't know, maybe he's getting carried away. Uh, I know there are Israelis who hate the right-wing governments that they've had these last while. So, th three points emerge in the context of what I have to say is absolutely depression-inducing, sorrow-inducing human suffering at the hands of other humans. But we do need to understand this situation as thoroughly and in as many dimensions as we can in order to move out of it. And this is beyond the, the immediate ceasefires and so forth that are likely to occur now, it seems, that Joe Biden is back in a ceasefire. Having, uh, just a few days ago, really, placed his shoulder behind Israel, uh, yeah, the, America's aircraft carrier in the Middle East, with its uh, 3.8 billion and its state-of-the-art military. Uh, but now he's attempting to use his good offices as the uh, president of the Hegemon to bring about some kind of ceasefire. That's the short term. The long term is... does require a, f a full understanding before anything can happen that just won't fail. And obviously there have been di diplomatic moves for years, for decades, and initiatives and movements and, and little steps forward, always, but always failing. I would just want to put my little, very, very small two-penneth in there and say there's, there's at least three things I can say that need to be understood and investigated. Historical geopolitical context, the nature of propaganda, Bearing in mind that the Israeli government is a propaganda machine of the highest skill. And thirdly, the way in which trauma rolls down the ages, rolls through the generations. Just as it has uh, in the case of the United States, in which the consequences of slavery are still playing themselves out.
and for myself, Israel is a colonial settler state, illegally occupying lands and, and behaving in the most heartless and sadistic fashion towards a population that was indigenous to those lands. at the time the state of Israel was instigated. This is somewhat reminiscent of that other settler colonial state, the, the United States of America. We should remember that the, that the Pilgrim Fathers were escaping religious persecution and they went to the New World in order to gain some sort of religious freedom. But this new land had already got people living in it and they were... Uh, killed, persecuted, uh, pushed off their lands, uh, sent into uh, reservations. Their culture and their languages in many instances were destroyed. And millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions died in the process. So it's a bit of a, a dark one t today. Okay, I'm back at home now. I want to add a postscript. In fact, a couple of postscripts. The first thing I want to add is to a remark uh, on the fact that the Palestinians have received massive support from around the world in the form of demonstrations and lobbying of government and so forth. It seems that uh, the state of Israel still gets support of other states, but people around the world are pretty much behind supporting the Palestinians and, and their cause. In the case of uh, the United Kingdom, there was at least... 150,000 people uh, demonstrating uh, in London with further demonstrations around the country in c cities. I know Bristol was pretty active, but also in some smaller towns like uh, I noticed a report from Abergavenny in South Wales, but uh, there had been a lot, lots of local demonstrations as well. And that strikes me as a, a good thing. The next addendum I want to give is to actually just read the Balfour Declaration. Here goes. Balfour Declaration, Foreign Office, November the 2nd, 1917. Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's Government the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the Cabinet. Quote, His Majesty's Government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by the Jews in any other country. 
End quotes. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Yours, Arthur Balfour. Thanks for listening. Look after yourselves. Make knowledge great again. Over and out. Speak soon.